welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we hope you join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We are located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After the message, take a moment and visit our website at vcctulare.com. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, let's get into the Word this morning. We're going to be in John 2, 13 through uh, 25, I think it is. But uh, last time we saw John at the wedding with Jesus in Canaan. And it was a really cool Jesus. It was a cool Jesus that cared about, you know, the couple running out of wine and how that would affect them and, and, and the view of, of the rest of the people on them and so forth. You know, he doesn't want the bride and groom to really be embarrassed. So we get this really cool picture of who Jesus is, this really nice picture of him, you know, just fitting in and, and helping out and, and just kind of serving in the background and all that. And John now is going to take us toward the end of chapter 2 in a completely different direction when it comes to our portrait of who Jesus is. Uh, you know, it's not a nice guy that was up in Cana. Um, you, you know, the, the John and the rest of the disciples follow Jesus as they co- go toward Jerusalem for Passover. And this picture we see of him right here is very unique. It's not a, a picture that you're going to put in stained glass windows or on a painting. Uh, you know, you, we always have the nice pictures, you know, Jesus with the lamb or, you know, all, you know with the halo, d- different paintings and so forth, really cool pictures and so forth. This picture that we're going to c- come up with today is not one of those pictures. It's, you're, you're, not, you're never going to find this on a canvas on a wall unless you paint it yourself or commission somebody to do this. That. But, uh, you know, Jesus even, we get this side of Jesus that we, we see that he's very angry. And in our point of view, we almost see him out of control. I could imagine the disciples going, I didn't see this about him. I, I, I never saw this side of him. Uh, and, and Jesus does this. He doesn't warn, warn them at all. They're very excited because they're going up to Jerusalem for Passover. And every year a Jew would say, next year in Jerusalem, because it was so important for them to go to temple during this time. And if they could you know, save up the money and have the expense to actually make it to Jerusalem, it was a big deal. You know, this is more important for a Jew than, than going and see family for Christmas. This is more important for Jew than showing up at the Christmas Eve service or something like that. It's kind of a tradition. This is like the most important thing for a Jew in their lifetime was to go experience Passover in Jerusalem at the temple when it was actually the temple before it was destroyed and so forth. So the disciples are really happy right now, and, and you know, the, Jesus is attracting followers. Uh, many of them saw the, the, the miracle he did down in Cana. You know, it's kind of a popularity thing. And they're going to temple with him. And they're kind of walking around going, yep, I, hey, I'm with the new guy. You know, the new priest? Yeah, oh, I was there for the miracle. Unbelievable. Did you, oh, man, let me tell you about it. And they would spend the next 45 minutes, and you're, by the end of it, you're like, okay, I get it. You're really, I, it's really cool, you know. But it's kind of a popularity thing. And, and all these guys were, were there and, and watched him and so forth. Now, Jerusalem would have been totally, completely packed. Now, going to Jerusalem uh, this last year, it is always packed. It's always got a lot of people there, especially with all the cultures. It's a, it's a hilarious mixture of cultures. You have like the, the Armenian, you know, section of town. You have the Jewish section of town. You got the Christian section of town, you know, all up near the temple. It's, it's a really fun place. 
But historians would say that there would be about 2 million people that would show up in this town. Now, today's infrastructure, okay, they can handle it. Back then, 2 million people showing up to Jerusalem is a huge deal. It's not something that just happens all the time. And everyone would come to worship Yahweh at the temple. And right before the temple was destroyed, one of the historians counted. Um, they did a survey or something. I'm not sure how they did it. But the number of lambs sold at one of the markets, just one, not all the markets, but just one of them, on Passover weekend, and it was over 270,000 lambs that were sold that were going to be sacrificed. So it kind of gives you an idea of how busy this place was and what was going on. You can imagine how many people were there. And they're celebrating Passover. They're celebrating God's rescue from the impressing, you know, Egyptian Pharaoh. And they would not miss the irony of the oppressing Romans. They wouldn't have missed that. So there would have been this underlying tension between the Jews and the Romans. And the Roman guards would have been in what we call the Antonio Fortress. Now, this picture here is a picture of of what they think the temple looked like back then. Uh, They're not 100% sure. So over here, kind of onto the right side in that corner, that area right there with those four towers, that was called the Antonio Fortress. And what the Antonio Fortress was is Herod had the temple rebuilt. And they spent, I want to say, if my memory is correct, up to this point in history, like 46 years building on it, and they kept building for another 20 years. I mean, this is one of the most phenomenal buildings built during this age and this time. Beautiful building. But as Herod built it, as King Herod built it, well, he can't let the Jews get out of control. Herod was a half-Jew himself. So, you know, they, the Romans allowed him to be in charge of this whole section in the, you know, the Palestine, that area, and so forth. But what he did was build the, uh, the Antonio Fortress higher than the temple grounds. Not enough that they could see into the actual, you know, Holy of Holies and so forth, but high enough that the guards, which wouldn't want to go inside because you wouldn't want to cause, a, you know, a riot inside the temple with Roman guards being there. I mean, that, that would have been a big no-no. I mean, that would have been too much. But they could sit up there and watch what was going on, going on during temple time. If somebody started freaking out or somebody started gathering up people, if a riot were to happen, because this had happened several times already in history. So the Romans were wanting to, to make sure that nothing would happen. The, site, uh, the top of the site is 35 acres that Herod built uh, the temple on. You know, we don't really like uh, Herod that much, especially, you know, with what he did and, and how he ruled and everything. But he did build a very nice temple. Now, this is like the Temple Revision 2.5, I call it, because it was kind of the halfway temple between you know, the Solomon Temple being destroyed, and they kind of rebuilt it during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and all that so, uh, so forth, and, the, um, uh, and Micah and, and those guys, some of the minor prophets. But it was a beautiful temple. Herod showed up and said, I want to build you guys a good temple. The reason why he did that was for one reason. If I can please the, the, the leaders of the Jews, then they're not going to riot. If I can make them happy, well, then it'll just keep the tensions down. So that's what he did. It was beautiful, beautiful um, temple. And, and it took 20 more years after this, and they finally got it dedicated. Big, huge ceremony in history for, for the Jews and so forth. And then four years later, it was destroyed. It's amazing. It's amazing. But it was still dramatic at this point. One of the most beautiful buildings as we talk about. So Jesus goes up and goes into what is called the the, um, court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles 
Here's one picture, and I started looking back through my uh, Israel pictures, and I didn't really have great pictures of this area. But basically coming up the southern steps into the uh, into the temple area. So from the city of David, you would kind of go up the southern steps. It was more the commoner entrance to the temple. Um, you would rise up, and you would get into the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles was one of the areas that Gentile believers could go. There were certain areas that women and Gentiles could not enter into. This is one of those areas that they could go. So you would have a mix of culture and a mix of, of people in this area, tons of, of room, and here's just one of the pictures. So you can imagine this place um, full. Uh, the, since I didn't have a good picture, here's a, a picture of the other side, uh, side of the temple, which is not the court of the Gentiles. But I want to give you an idea of the, the wide openness of the space and so forth. Um, so that's on the other side of where the temple would be. But you could imagine stalls set up. You know, t- today we go down our farmer's market. We got our light, white little pop-up tents that we put up, and everybody has their own little stall. Imagine the same kind of concept of stall after stall after stall, selling doves and, and goats and, and sheep and, and pigeons and all these different things that you would sacrifice. And at the same time, you would have stalls of money changers because you would never want to give the Lord somebody else's money. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's money. You don't give to the Lord what's the Lord's money. So you would actually go in and exchange your money for the temple money. And how this worked was, if you wanted a half a shekel, you had to give a whole shekel, and they would give you a half a shekel. In other words, the exchange fee was 100% of what, it, of what it was to get what you wanted. So, you know, it wasn't just a half a shekel. It was a whole shekel to get a half a shekel back. And now my mind's all confused, you know. So you can imagine the bustling and, and all the stuff going on, the noise and so forth. And this is where Jesus enters into the place. It, what, what's interesting is the Jews did not seem to have a problem with what was going on with this. But Jesus walks in and he's like crazy mad. I mean, he just gets hot. He just goes off on them. And I mean, he starts throwing over tables and all this. But Bef- before he does this, he goes over into a corner and sets down and starts making a whip. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this or ever done it yourself, but it's for, you know, that period of time when, when you're, you're really angry about something and you go sit down and you're just thinking about it the whole time. I can imagine Jesus over there going, I just can't believe this must be a house of prayer as he's making the whip. So he do, wherever he got little leather pieces or whatever from, he sat down and started making a whip at that time. And then he gets up and he just starts swinging this whip over his head or, or you know, Indiana Jones style. I don't know, however he did. I mean, and just people just kind of flooding and, and going everywhere, starts throwing over tables, opening up the cages of the doves, herding the sheep loose. And, you know, chaos is taking over. People are screaming and just running around. And the disciples, I could imagine, what is going on? Why, why is he doing this? Because, I mean, he's, he's a priest. Why would he? Well, he's supposed to be doing miracles. This isn't going to get the people to follow him. You know, I just thought he was going over to the corner to, to get a little peace and quiet for a second. And Jesus is yelling. You know, he's like, get this stuff out of here! For 35 acres, you could hear his voice just bellowing. You have made my father's house into a, to, to a house of merchandising. This is a temple, not a shopping mall. Get out! You can imagine the tension that was there. The veins of his neck would have been, you know, just pop. You know, when you get somebody gets mad, they're just like, oh, tense. Kind of like mine right now, you know. 
Imagine the disciples going, Jesus, man, what are you doing? The guards, the guards are going to see this. You don't want the guards to come in here. And on that day, the place kind of closed down a little early. And here comes the temple committee. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he had found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves. And the money changers were doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out, all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the, the changers' money and overturned the tables. He said to those who sold doves, Take away these things. Do not make my father's house into a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for the house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered him and said, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? You notice they didn't arrest him. They didn't come to arrest Jesus. But the temple committee kind of showed up and said, We see you doing this. We've read the scriptures. We understand a Messiah may be coming at this point in history. We're trying to figure out, are you that Messiah? So, so why are you doing these things? You know, what you're doing, we can understand your, your anger. We can understand what you're doing. We can understand you, you, you know, yeah, it may not be great, but this is kind of what we've been, you know, left with. We don't have that much room out in the city to sell the doves and all that, which, which needs to be done. But they were looking for Messiah, so they were kind of questioning here. They're trying to figure out, just maybe, just maybe he's crazy enough to gather the people around him to go up against these Romans that are oppressing us. Just maybe he's the guy. I mean, he did this to us. I mean, us. Imagine what he'll do to them. The Romans. Show us a sign to validate this. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. They were like, what, this, this temple? And in three days, I will raise it up. And they have no clue what he's talking about. They have no clue that he's talking about himself. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? How ludicrous is that? Come on, whatever. Dude, are you, I mean, we thought you were crazy already. You really are off your rocker, aren't you? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. You see, even his followers hadn't figured out what he was talking about yet. They remembered later on. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. He's saying, you want a sign? I will give you a sign. But you're going to have to wait for three years until you see that sign. Because you are going to kill me one day, and I'm going to raise from the dead three days later. Three days to think it's all over. Three days to get rid of this pain in your side. Three days to kind of get back into routine. Whew, glad that's over with. Three days you're going to think it's completely over. And at the end of that three days, I'm going to come back here and I'm going to spend 40 days teaching in this same spot, in these temple grounds, and people are going to start to believe. Because that's what he did. He spent 40 days in the temple teaching after he, was, after he raised himself from the dead. And it's going to prove to you that beyond a shadow of doubt, I had every right to come in here 
with a whip and do this. Verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now next week we're going to cover, we're going to get into uh, Nicodemus, which was one of, uh, which could have been one of these temple authorities that, that came to talk to Jesus, uh, because we do know that he was up at that level and so forth. He might have been there, who knows? But many believed in his name, and he's starting to work miracles, not just water into wine. He's starting to work miracles in public. The word was out, and I'm sure the Romans were starting to watch as well. Verse 24 says, But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of men, for he knew what was in man. John remembers some very important things about Jesus. And if you read slowly enough through John's observations of who Christ is, you know, I, I don't know, maybe John was one of these guys that was a journaler and, and just wrote everything down, you know, or maybe he felt like he was a reporter and needed to write everything. I don't, I don't know, but I mean, some of his stuff that comes out is just so amazing. He wrote down that he didn't seem to want or need man's approval. He didn't want to seem to need it. In fact, this kind of killed his momentum. Wouldn't you think that you know, all of a sudden you, you, you do a couple of, of miracles in Cana and, and they start following you, you've got this huge following, why would you go in and upset the temple? Because, I mean, that, that would seem like it would take away your momentum. Jesus, you know, has got Jerusalem so upset. The rumors are flying around. Except for those who are recognizing him are starting to follow him now. John is thinking... What is happening here? Why would Jesus do this? And Jesus is saying, these people want to worship. And you have crowded them out. All you care about is their money. You don't care about that they want to connect with the Father. This area was for the Gentiles. It was their way of coming to get as close to the temple as possible to be able to connect with the God that they believed in. Except they had no room to do that. Tons of room up there on top of the temple. It was all filled with merchandise. It was all filled with with stuff that that was going to be sacrificed, which was was a good thing because they needed those things. Because, you know, the lamb wasn't necessarily going to last on the boat ride all the way from Egypt. The lamb wasn't going to last, you know, all the way from the area of Babylon and, and, uh, you know, Syria and all these different places the Jews would have been coming from, Libya area and, you know, even below Egypt. The lamb wasn't necessarily going to last that long. Why would you want to give a lamb to your Lord, a sacrifice, the best thing you could ever give to the Lord? Why would you want to give him something that was imperfect? So, of course, these guys were needed. But what they were doing was amazing. The irony of it all. 270,000 lambs in one weekend. Ironically, many of these lambs were grown right over there in Bethlehem. Interesting side note. So what was Jesus upset about? He wasn't upset that they were selling lambs for Passover. Of course not. So what was he upset about? Location, location, location. Isn't that what the realtors always say? He was upset about the location. Not saying that you're not supposed to be selling these things, but he was saying, you're not supposed to be doing that right here. 
This is about worship. You've turned my father's house into a market because it's just more convenient for you. Just because if you sold it where you should be selling it, people might have to climb the hill to come up to the temple with them. These people were at their most vulnerable. When are you the most like that? Well, when you're grieving, you know. That's why they say make no money decisions uh, when a mate dies or something like that. Make no huge decisions in that because you're vulnerable. Secondly, it's when you're in love. Oh, when you're in love, you'll just do anything, won't you, pretty much? Or you're trying to get somebody's approval. You're very vulnerable when you're trying to get somebody's approval. It was kind of interesting. We were over at some friend's house the other night. I even mentioned them. I might even do this. It's kind of funny. Their dog, they got out one of those rawhide bones. And, you know, the dogs just run around having fun. You know, it's a dog. Man, they got out that uh, rawhide bone. That dog just, like, was a statue. I mean, it was, that dog would, I mean, if you could have taught him how to do flips in the air, the dog would have done it to get to that rawhide bone. He was vulnerable because he knew he was going to get something. Same kind of concept. And then you throw money in the mix. They are so vulnerable at this time. You can rip them off. Well, honey, I mean, I know the lamb, I, I know that we weren't planning on spending that much money for the lamb, but, but I mean, it's God. We can't shortchange God. I, I, I know we only saved up so much, but maybe we can get money out of this. What are we going to do? We're going to give them one that's imperfect? No. You can rip them off. And that is what's happening in the temple grounds. So it wasn't just the location. Jesus was, was really mad about the price. The exchange rate is terrible. The money changers, you know, the records show they were making a 100% markup. Come on. And there was nothing that the people could do about it. And Jesus comes through, mad about the location, mad about the exchange rate. You know, interestingly, you, you know, if you read back in, in, in the Gospels, in the other Gospels, later in their writings, they show that Jesus actually did this again. And Mark 11 was one of those. All three Gospels talk about how Jesus came back late in his ministries. Three years later, he does the same thing again. They never learned from the first time. They never did. How, how often does, does the Holy Spirit have to come back in our lives and say, Alan, I thought we went over this, but apparently you didn't figure it out. So we're going to have to go through this all again. And I'm like, well, why are you doing this to me, Lord, you know? And he's like, because you didn't learn. Come on. Three years later, right before his crucifixion, he cleanses the temple again. He makes a huge scene. And during that cleansing, he says pretty much the same thing, but he adds something else. He says, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You're stealing from God. And what this is doing is exposing Christ's heart, which also exposes our Father's heart. That's what he's doing here. Well, really, what is the Father's heart? The Father wants to reward those who who seek Him diligently. He wants to reward those. People are coming to Jerusalem for Passover. This is a great expense for them. They've traveled a long way, and the Lord wants to connect with them. He wants to honor them for that. And here in the temple grounds, you have something that's preventing that for so many Records show that ships were chartered every year to bring people in for Passover. That's kind of like us chartering planes to fly somewhere every year. 
So they get there and everything is expensive. And the father is upset. Because in the temple area, these people who are wanting to be pleasing to God are being taken advantage of. And our father incarnate through Jesus comes through and says, How dare you? How dare you gorge people here? How dare you you use religion to make a buck? You know, the high priest Ananias at this time, he was just kind of a figurehead. He was a high priest all right. But I tell you, the priests, they wore the best garments. They got fed the best because they would take from the temple grounds. The Lord had provided a way for them to be taken care of. But he also figured out, if I just rent out to the local merchants, if I rent out this area that I'm in control of, then I can make some money. He became very wealthy, and they would pass it down to family members. So wealthy the priests were that in 56 AD, the Romans came in to punish Jerusalem for an uprising, that the Roman government said, after a couple of weeks of you out there ra- you know, raping and pillaging and taking things, you're allowed to go into the temple area, and you're allowed to take, you know... Uh, <sighs> I forgot how, I don't have a figure here, but they said that they were able to take a little dip into the temple funds. And it's written about, and it says that they took equivalent of $12 million in today's currency. It would be equivalent. I don't have what it was back then. But think about that for a second. $12 million. And that was just, okay, you, you come take some. Don't cause a big deal but you can take it back to the Roman government. You can have some since you're in charge. You know, the the general that was in charge, you can have some, but take some back to the Roman government. You know, don't take it all. That's how much extra was around. This is supposed to be a house of prayer and what you have done with it. You know, where's the brokenness? Where's the seeking of the Lord? Where's the fellowship? Where's the worship of God? You've turned this place into a retail area. You You know, arguably, this would be the angriest that you would ever see God. I mean, there's a couple other times I can think of that that God's anger really showed, you know, him opening up the earth and swallowing, you know, a hundred and some odd thousand people, you know, I mean, that's pretty angry. I can imagine this would be right there on par with that. How weird would it have been to actually see Jesus lose it this way? And I'm saying lose it in our, our human terms. I mean, he's perfect. He didn't lose it. But in our view of things, the disciples wrote that it was zeal. And Jesus doesn't have to apologize by this. In Psalm 69, it says, The zeal for your house has consumed me, has overtaken me. And the disciples have might, have, you know, might have even you know, misunderstood this. They might have even thought he was talking about the temple. Because a good Jewish man, a good Jewish person, would be thinking this. But what he was talking about was worship. Jesus wasn't in love with the building. Read the Psalms. What was he in love with? He was in love with the people that responded to him in worship. In a few years, he would allow the Romans to come in and literally flatten the top of the Temple Mount. We got pictures of the stones that were rolled off and actually still have the burn marks. It's amazing that it can last that long. And people just came in and piled dirt on top of those rocks and just built right on top of them. This building represented prayer. It represented people connecting with God. Blood sacrifice. 
that points to him. And he knows that within three years, within 36 months, he will be the one who will be sacrificed. He will be the Passover lamb. And he would like for people to take notice of that. He's saying, hey guys, you're missing the point here. You're supposed to be seeking me, not dealing with all this other stuff, not here, not right now, not over Passover weekend especially. It is about our relationship. You know, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added onto you. God wants to, to add to us. He wants our relationship with Him to grow. He wants our church to grow. And whatever we do, we need to seek Him first. In every ministry, we need to have prayer. In every meeting, we need to have prayer. In every activity, it needs to be centered around one thing, our relationship with Him. And that's why I talk a lot about loving, laughing, and playing together. Is the roundup? I mean, we're going to be square dancing. Is that centered around Him? If it's building God in relationships, it is. But it has to be Him at the core of it all. Friendships. Is the friendship a godly friendship? Is it centered around Him? Bible studies. Is it more talking than Bible study? Well, let's, let's do prayer request. It's gossip time. Prayer should be about prayer, not about finding out every little detail about the situation. Yeah, I think it's good for us to say, hey, what are our prayer needs? doesn't need to turn into something more than that. Women's ministry, men's ministry, what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about God in the middle of it all? Children's ministry, is it just babysitting or is it teaching them about our Lord? Is it teaching them that the love of God just so overwhelms them at this age that when they get to our age, they respond to it? We have to be diligent to make sure that we stay centered around God. We need to make sure that we stay disciplined. Because I don't want the Lord to come through my life or our church with a whip and throwing stuff over and freaking out in, in, in the human view to take care of issues that shouldn't be there. Because now I'm the temple of the Lord. I don't want Him coming in and destroying my life because I'm not following Him. I don't want my life to be destroyed. I want to follow him so he's pleased with what I do. Not 100% of the time because I can never totally get rid of my sin. But, but I, want the, I, want to, I want to please him more than I not please him in my life. We should have a natural reputa- representation or a reputation of people recognizing our purpose as a person, as a church, which is primarily to worship him, to keep our focus on who he is. And not who I agree with. I don't agree with 100% of the people 100% of the time. You can't. But it's about our worship with the Lord. It's not about what person made me mad or didn't make me mad. It's about our worship to the Lord. It's not about who I really like and who I really get along with and who I don't. It's about our worship with the Lord. When we do these things, our focus is building up on the, you know, it's, it's our focus should be you know, on the building of the body and worshiping Him. It amazes me at how quickly our focus can change. One minute we're worshiping, the next minute our mind is totally somewhere off. Somewhere else, you know, just off somewhere. Even I find myself sometimes like that. We need to stay focused on God throughout our day. 
Whether, you know, by listening to Christian music, whether that helps you or doesn't help you, you've got to do something. Or taking your Bible wherever you go to remind you to, to get into His Word or to worship Him? Are we thinking about who we hang out with? Are copying verses down to memorize? You know, stick it on your mirror, stick it in your car. I, you know, I put notes in different places. I used to put a note right up here on, on this thing. It says, remember to turn on your mic. Because I would forget to turn on my mic. Do we need to do that with Scripture? Put it in our car, on our dashboard? Put it, you know, so when I see it, it reminds me. The Lord, re, you know, rewards those who seek Him. The Lord honors those who honestly seek Him. In what way do you show on a daily basis that you worship the Lord? In what way do you show up to worship? You know, that's a hard one. We try to dedicate Sunday as a day to, to, to worship our Lord. So often, even when I show up, my mind is 30, 40 million different places. I have to focus myself to be able to worship We call this the house of God. Really, the house of God is me. It's not about these walls. But when we come together in corporate worship, it's unbelievable what He can do and how He can change our lives. It may just be a small little change, but it can change your life totally. And it's all about focus. Not only do I get to focus, I mean, (laughs) focus, not only do I get to worship, but I get to worship with people who are like-minded. And that is a beautiful thing. The Lord rewards those who seek Him. Is Sunday just a Sunday thing? Is it something you grew up with? That's just what we do on Sundays. Or is it turned into something where you get to connect with your Lord, which is my Lord? Do you honestly come to seek Him and to worship Him? If you do, the Lord will honor that in your life. And you should encourage others to do the same. If you don't, then you might find God in your life like a whip, knocking some things around, overturning some tables, getting your attention to what is really important in your life, which is what? Worship. Worship is a living, breathing exercise. It is what we do every day with our life. Worship is our response to God's love in our life. Worship is simply recognizing there's something greater than you and I. Worship is, is, is taking care of each other. Worship is loving kids and, you know, with a godly love. Worship is teaching others the Word of God. Worship is serving coffee so others can, can spend a moment and hang out together. And fellowship with God be in the center of that. Worship is loving others when they totally don't deserve it. Have you ever done that? Love somebody when you're sitting there going, I really don't want to love this person, but God's telling me to love them? Worship is trying to live a holy life in this messed up world. Let's not turn our worship into something that it shouldn't be by taking the focus off of God and discarding it. And that is why Jesus... Representing the Father is so upset in His temple because the focus was not on Him, but on themselves. It was about making money. Let's stay focused on what matters in this world. Where is your focus today? Where will your focus be tomorrow morning when that alarm goes off? Or at 2.30 in the morning when the neighbors are partying next door and you've got to call the cops. Two nights in a row. Where is our focus in the middle of the week 
Where's our focus on our job? Yeah, we have to do our job, but we can do it with Christ. We can do it with God in our lives. We have to stay focused in our life or we'll find ourselves on a track that does you no good, does your family no good, that does those who are around you no good, and the Lord's sitting there going, come back. Or I'm going to have to chase you down with a whip in your life and overturn some tables, and you're not going to understand why until you start focusing on me. It's about focus. Let's pray. Lord, it is about us worshiping you. I pray that this week that you help us understand what worship is. That we can worship you at our jobs, no matter what job it is. We can worship you in our time off, no matter what we're doing. I pray, Lord, that you encourage us through your spirit to get into your word. That you encourage us to hang out with godly people. To build those relationships that that just are so key in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you help deepen my relationship with you. That you help me clear out that temple area in my own life that is filled with clutter, stuff that shouldn't even be there, so that when I enter in that place, I can worship you. Lord, I pray that this next week, that as we get ready to love, laugh, and play together at the Roundup, that our focus be on you, that we have fun, but we never take our eyes off of you that you be in the center of all the events that we do, every Bible study, every meeting, every get-together, that we do these things to worship you and to bring people closer to you. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. The Lord keep you focused in your life on worshiping him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.